Chapter 13 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 A Desert Ride, Borrego Springs to Los Coyotes. Borrego Springs is one of the important watering places on the Colorado Desert. Lying near the mountains, it is a strategic point in the operations of cattlemen whose ranges extend over the Santa Rosa, San Felipe, Volcan, and Cuyamaca country, and who once in a year or two may have occasion to drive cattle into or out of the mountains by the desert route. These drives are often for long distances, say from Arizona or Sonora, and in large herds, so that only the few spots that furnish abundant water are of service for resting and watering the stock. Borrego Springs makes a convenient one-day stage before entering or leaving the mountains. When I was camping here with some friends on another occasion, we were disturbed in the middle of the night by the arrival of a bunch of cattle that had just pulled in en route to Borrego Valley. In the morning, when the drove was getting underway, we were passing the compliments at the corral bars with two of the vaqueros. Names were exchanged. And who is that young fellow, one of us asked, pointing to a lively young puncher in red shirt and well-worn chaps, who was rounding up the stragglers. That young fellow is this fellow's wife, one of the men answered, indicating his companion. El habito no hace al monje, the dress does not make the monk, says the Spanish proverb. The old house bore testimony to many years of usage by cattlemen, surveyors prospectors and other haunters of the open spaces on the back door i found an elaborate decoration dated four months earlier the two men who signed it stated themselves to be in search of that old will-o'-the-wisp of prospectors the peg-leg mine and in lightness of heart had drawn a picture representing peg-leg smith himself looking at borrego springs from gold hill the great man was realistically shown mounted on a burrow, pipe in mouth, pick on shoulder, and Peg advanced as if hospitably greeting the beholder. Pegleg Smith, who might by courtesy be called the patron saint of California prospectors, deserves more than a passing reference. In the course of this journey, I came upon his tracks so often that at times I felt almost haunted. To be for two hours in company with a prospector and not have Pegleg come into the conversation is among the impossible things of life. I heartily wish that someone would find that mine and put the old eternal anecdotes and theories to final rest. Well, sir, this is the sort of thing. Dutchy can say whatever he's a mind to. I claim to know them air chocolates purty blank well. C and I drywashed every blank gully from Dos Palms to Cargo Muchach, and I tell you, they ain't no chance for that blank formation in the hull blank layout. Why, look a here. Old Pegleg, he says, and off we would go once more into the threadbare history, with the changes rung on buttes and monuments, ledges and bearings, till I remembered to go and water Kawea, or put my rice to boil, or whatever excuse came easiest to hand. To make a brief statement of the case, for the benefit of any citizen of the United States who may not yet have heard it, 
this particular smith thomas l conspicuous among the tribe by the circumstance of a timber leg was a brother of that jedediah smith who ranks high among western pioneers thomas l became the leader of one of those bands of trappers who in the thirties and forties roved over the vast spaces of the west in quest of furs and adventure the peg leg itself was a souvenir of the adventures he having amputated the natural member himself when it was shattered by a bullet in the course of a fight with indians on one of these journeys the party reached the colorado river worked down the stream to its junction with the gila and crossed into california when they struck northwest toward the pass later known as warner's or the san felipe which was at that time the only known approach to the southern coast before reaching the mountains some of the party one evening climbed a low hill near camp and noticed that the dark outcropping rock was thickly sprinkled with yellow metal strange to say though the men were interested enough to carry away specimens they seemed not to have guessed that they had found gold until the year of eighteen forty eight with the historic strikes on the sacramento turned all men's thoughts to one idea then it was found that the specimens brought from the desert knoll were phenomenally rich in gold smith was then in san francisco along with the rest of the world in eighteen fifty he got together a party to make a search for the precious butte before getting well started the loss of some of the equipment of the expedition put the leader out of humor with the affair and it was abandoned nor did he ever renew the attempt this is all ancient history and it might seem strange that the legend of peg legs find rich as it may have been should have survived through two generations but from time to time there have occurred seeming corroborations of the fact that such a wondrous mine in just such circumstances of position and formation as are named in the details of the discovery indians figure largely in these later evidences and not merely to the extent of word of mouth there have been incidents showing that they had access to some rich store of gold in the region of smith's memorable strike and always the hints have been of buttes and of the mysterious black formation these accessory details have not only kept alive the belief in the mine but have extended the field of believers until the peg-leg mine is a household word in california from first to last though the last is yet unreached the number of those who have gone out on this adventure must run to hundreds and the tale of those who have never returned is tragically long hardly a year passes without two or three parties taking up the search following some new theory or clue my predecessors at this old cabin were among the latest additions to the list i may say here that a month or two later i chanced to meet a man who had recently seen them safe and sound but of course unsuccessful well on their homeward way as for me though i am not of the breed that peg-leggers come of and long ago resolved following a well-known example to die a poor man yet i feel the fascination of the gold hunter's game and have sometimes over my campfire played with the idea of sudden freedom from impecuniary cares by stumbling on a mine here at borrego springs i overlooked the very ground where if anywhere peg-leg smith's bonanza is awaiting an owner from all evidences it could not be a day's march away 
a little hill such as I walk up any day for the view, but, behold, littered with nuggets that one could pick out like walnuts with a pocket knife. It was an exciting idea, and I almost resolved to make a practice of climbing all the little hills thereafter. But there came a soberer thought, of the poor wretches who had fallen to the lure, followed the gleam, and the gleam had led them on and on a little farther, to the next rise, the canyon beyond, till the terrible badlands had them locked in their scorching maze, there to wander till, crazed and raving, they staggered and fell, scrambled with frantic terror to their feet and stumbled on, the thought of gold a frightful mockery now, till they fell once more and did not rise again. If ever the peg-leg mine is found, it would not be surprising if there are seen about it the bleaching bones of the fortunate ones who reached the goal. Then it should be renamed the Death's Head and christened with the dregs of a canteen of seventeen palms water. Kabuya and I kept Sunday very comfortably at Borrego Springs. For him there were mesquite beans in plenty, and even a picking of Bermuda grass. For me, shade and the thought of a bad piece of country in my rear. For us both, good, cool, abundant water. A roadrunner came around several times to make sure his eyes were not playing him false. Lizards with iridescent head and throat crept down the roasting boards and watched me with cunning reptilian stare. A few finches cheeped and twittered, the friendliest sound I had heard for days. A tour of the immediate neighborhood showed the usual incidents of these old camps, cascades of cans, scraps of rawhide, horseshoes, rock specimens, and stove-in canteens. The corral gate was decorated with the skull of a steer, a satirical object for the famishing cattle as they shoved their way to the water trough. Among the names scrawled here and there were some that have gained a measure of renown in the story of pioneering in the Southwest. More recent were the autographs of a party of government surveyors, from Lieutenant Tripod, Chief Engineer, down to Pete Ortega, Chief of Ramuda. Slowly the mapping of the dregs of Uncle Sam's domain is being completed, though it is rash to call anything dregs when date grows flourish on what a few years ago was marked unknown desert, dry lake beds yield priceless fertilizers, and any day the prospector's pick may strike a blow that will bring men stampeding in thousands to the latest El Dorado, perhaps within rifle shot of where I stand. History is always fertile in debatable points for students to quarrel over. Even in the history of the West, short as it has been within white men's times, there are matters of dispute. One of these is a question as to the route of the first Spanish expedition by land from Mexico to the California coast. This entrada, to use the Spanish word, was led by Captain Juan Batista Anza in 1774, its object being to make overland connection with the settlements of San Diego and Monterrey, established five years earlier by Don Gaspar de Portola and Fray Junipero Serra. The party, starting from Tubac in Sonora, crossed the Colorado River on the 9th of February, first picking up that stout old campaigner, Fray Francisco Hermen and Gildo Garces, who had already been knocking about for years among the wild tribes of the region, and made their way across the desert, 
apparently at first keeping to the south of the present Mexico-United States border. On reaching the Cocopah Mountains, they turned north and crossed the line somewhere near Signal Mountain, finding water, it is guessed, at what are now called Yuha Springs. Traveling still north, the next camp, March 10th, was at a large cienega where the water and forage were so bad as to cause the loss of several of their animals. This place, which they named San Sebastián del Peregrino, is identified as the Carrizo Cienega. At this point, students of the records fall into disagreement. Some suppose that the expedition, keeping on still north, rounded Santa Rosa Mountain at Clay Point, where I had turned west for 17 palms, and then turned northwest up what is now called the Coachella Valley, entering the coast region by San Gorgonio Pass. Given our present knowledge of the country, that would have been the natural route, and many of the details set down by the explorers suggest that it was the one taken. The other opinion is that on leaving the Carrizo camp, the party struck northwesterly up the broad arm of the desert, which I had just crossed in another direction, that leads by way of Borrego Springs into Borrego Valley and Coyote Canyon that they now made their way by that canyon and a branch of it now called Horse Canyon up to what is now known as Van de Venter Flat. Whichever route they took, they reached high ground with good forage and water, and of the place, wherever it was, the gallant captain writes, This Paraje station is a pass, and I named it El Puerto Real de San Carlos. From it, may be discovered some very beautiful plains, green and flowery, and the Sierra Nevada with pines, oaks, and other trees proper to cold countries. In it the waters are divided, some running to the Gulf, and others to the Philippine Ocean. I do not know all the parts of the routes in question well enough to venture a decided opinion, but from what I have seen, I think the southerly is likely to have been the one followed. Footnote. My Indian friend, Lee Arenas, tells me that the Cahuilla tribes inhabiting country adjacent to Coyote Canyon have a tradition that the first white men came that way and speak of a fight that took place in the canyon with strangers using swords. Anza mentions no such incident. His record of the natives hereabouts is that they were expert thieves and could pick and steal with toes as cleverly as with fingers. Further, that they made much play with their legs and feet, on which account he named them danzantes, or dancers. Lee also says that the Indians called the head of the canyon La Puerta, but this is the common designation of any point in the nature of a pass. In footnote. Anyhow, it was pleasant to think so, for in that case, I was now on the old Anza Trail and should follow the footsteps of that picturesque company of padres, soldados, and arrieros for a good few miles. On this understanding, my Borrego Springs was probably the Awahe, a watering place of good quality that Anza or the padres named for San Gregorio and where the party rested for a day. He notes the fact of an Indian rancheria village, and there is evidence, in the shape of fragments of pottery, that Borrego Springs was long the site of an Indian settlement. But that would be sure to be the case where good water was to be found. Footnote. 
it was the rancheria of san gregorio by the by that was thrown into consternation naturally enough by the racket of the thirsty mules of the approaching party on the other hand it is related of the cocopas that they were quite captivated by the mules of some pioneer of about the same period i think it was padre garces there were not many travelers on these deserts a century and a half ago these natives had never seen mules before and astounding as it sounds found them charming moved with compassion at seeing the animals hobbled at night they removed the fetters and led them tenderly away to where a banquet of soothing pumpkins was spread and when a jack fell into a quagmire they all came to his assistance took him in their arms carried him to the fire and warmed and consoled him this is like the snug experiences of nick bottom in footnote i turned in betimes and coyotes obliged with a lullaby it seemed about twenty minutes afterward that i awoke to see the red pennon of dawn flying on the horizon it was inspiring however to be now close upon the mountains with the prospect of being for a few days among them with genuine trees grass that is green not gray and perhaps even a brook to drink from this variation from my desert program was for the purpose of getting mail and supplies at warner springs the only postal point i should even approach until i reached the settlements of imperial valley i turned now northwesterly following the route taken as i think likely by anza and his fellow explorers to my right rose an isolated dark mass called coyote mountain which figtree john claims as his birthplace one could hardly imagine a more unattractive place to call one's native spot yet no i remember the slums of man's cities it is there one reaches the ne plus ultra of the hideous on the other side at a few miles distance were the abrupt foothills of the peninsula range the high ridge of san ysidro overlooking them and showing on its crest tantalizing tokens of pines near here there is a place that has gained not without reason the unpleasant name of hell-hole it is a small bit of country but so maze-like in its ramifications that to enter it is probably to remain i have talked to a man who with a companion was once caught in this death-trap he narrated with vivid details the events of days during which they wandered about trying gully after gully for a way of escape and hourly losing heart and hope luckily it was winter so thirst the deadliest enemy was not to be feared and they had food enough for some days it was by mere chance that on the fourth day they stumbled out into the world that they hardly hoped to see again there is a fascination for me in these ill-favored bits of geography but in august with a horse and but a gallon and a half of water it seemed best to confine myself to guessing which of those furnace-like canyon mouths might be the reputed gateway to hades patches of salt grass began to appear mixed among wide expanses of alkali salitres as the mexicans call them for which this unwholesome grass has a liking the country looked as if it had been flooded with a saturated solution of salt in places the very grass blades sparkled with the salty encrustation and coia's hoofs kicked the stuff before us like snow 
After a few miles, I saw something ahead which looked like a house in a windmill. This was a surprise, though I knew that within late years, land-hungry settlers had turned their attention to Borrego Valley. On close approach, the house proved to be a wagon and the windmill a derrick. Someone had made an attempt to find water, but money or patience had given out, and the wagon and tools were left to fall to pieces in the sun. I heard afterwards that the outfit had come by the same route that I had taken, but the men had lost their way after passing Clay Point, and had been three days in reaching Seventeen Palms. Skulls and ribs of cattle, sometimes with shreds of hide upon them, gave token that I was in cattle country. Leg bones, being easy to manipulate by those ghouls the coyotes, are generally hauled off to a distance, but the skull and ribs with backbone usually stay where the poor brute perished, and coyotes, buzzards, and skunks repair again and again to the feast until the ultimate remnant glistens in the sun, a melancholy monument. There is something especially ghastly about the ribs with their hollow griddle look. Perhaps it is because of the resemblance to the human skeleton in this detail that the staring emptiness has a horror all its own. One realizes the fragility of one's own frame and thinks, with a shock, What, am I such a drum? A speck of green that I had been watching for half an hour revealed itself as the homestead of a settler. Half hidden by a huge mesquite was a one-room tent house of fair size. It was surrounded by half an acre or so of cultivated ground, all that was possible with the feeble flow of water yielded by the well. The man was away, but the barking of the dog brought out his wife, a cheery little Devonshire woman who bade me be seated and rest, do ye now? The first question was, have you brought any mail? And great was the disappointment when I explained that I was bound to, not from, Warner's, which is their mail station, 42 miles away. It appeared that the postmaster at Warner's was under instructions whenever he heard of anyone going through to Borrego Valley, which might happen half a dozen times a year, to press him into service as mail carrier. The next request was for a newspaper. This was another misfortune, and when I remarked that if I had brought one, it would have been a week old, the reply was, oh, that's nothing. If it was a month old, it would be news to us. Never mind, you can tell us the news anyway. This, I well understood, meant news of the war, for Devon is England and Little, the country of Raleigh, Grenville, and Drake. So we sat and chatted of comb and tor, of torridge, dart, and tavy, and of the importance attached to scraps of paper. Then she must show me her garden, the wondrous beans, radishes, and tomatoes, above all an incredible rose that had borne six blossoms in the spring. I do wish I'd had one on now so you could have it. Would carry all day if you'd keep it in the shade. I do love a rose, don't you? she went on. Seems like I never can get my fill of em. "'Twas four years, come Michaelmas, that we took this desert claim. "'Yes, I worked pretty hard over this garden. "'The jackrabbits are something awful, and the quail, too. "'I suppose they come for the water. "'My husband wants to fill up the hole where the water stands, "'but I tell him it would be cruel. "'And doves, they don't do any harm, though. "'I love to have them come. "'There must be five hundred, maybe a thousand, "'come round that little pool of an evening.' 
It sounds like a hundred autos when they fly. This is my second turn at what you might call pioneering. First was in the state of Washington. That was 25 years ago. Seems like I strike mostly quiet places. Like it here? Why, yes, I think it's pretty good and a beautiful climate. Why, 106 is as hot as we've had this summer, and think of them poor folks down in Imperial with 120 and hot nights and poor water. A whiff as of recent baking led to my buying a loaf of the genuine article together with a little sugar, also a few feeds of barley for coea. A muskmelon and two tomatoes were added as a present. When I urged her to take payment for these luxuries, she refused, but as I was leaving, charged with three letters that had lain many days under the family flatiron, she became wistful, then said softly, you wouldn't happen to have a mite of that lard that you could spare, would you now? She could not bear to see me depart without asking this one boon. So we divided my little store, and I left with a warning that I must look out for snakes in Coyote Canyon. For several hours we plodded up the broad gray valley toward the point where Coyote Canyon came in. Other canyons were passed, their mouths almost choked with mixed colonies of Ocotillo and Choya. This is the most clannish of the cacti, holding the foothill benches for miles to the exclusion of other growths. These tracks make a strange appearance, as if regiments of soldiers in uniform of palest gray were issuing from the canyon and had halted on the slope for a review. One of these canyons on the west side of the valley is known as Palm Canyon, not to be confused with the other Palm Canyon on the farther side of the mountains to the north. I scanned it with the glasses, but could see no likelihood of water, so reluctantly passed it by. Once or twice, paler patches could be seen on the great distance of the plain. They were the clearings of settlers, but I saw no token of cultivation about these places. If water is obtained, as it may be by deep boring, a similar miracle to that in the Coachella may follow, for the soil seems good, or at least fair, in parts of the Borrego Valley. As we neared the head of the valley, the ground changed to coarse gravel and boulders. The Ocotillo and Choya took advantage of this congenial mixture to make a sort of devil's garden, to which one or two other choice spirits, like the niggerhead and deerhorn cacti, were admitted. Once or twice, in spite of our best care, Kawea got nipped by some imp of a Choya. Much alike as the Choya and deerhorn are, I found that Kawea had learned the difference. When a bit of the latter caught him, he dislodged it by giving a violent kick. But if it was Choya, he came to a conspicuous halt and waited for me to operate with pocket knife and pliers. At last, we turned the shoulder of the mountain and entered the narrow canyon. Anza's Awahe of Santa Catarina may have been somewhere hereabouts, for it is here that Coyote Creek becomes visible. Below this point, it takes refuge underground in the usual fashion of desert waters. At this season, the stream was a mere thread of intermittent dampness, but in March, the month of Anza's passage, it would make more of a showing. Near the neck of a canyon, I noticed a cabin built of ocotillo canes. It consisted of one room of fair size, seven feet high, and roofed with brush. In spite of its chicken house look, it would make a tolerable dwelling for summertime on the desert. By the little pile of hay in the corner, 
I guessed that it was a cattleman's house of call. The ocotillo is a convenient material for such structures, and is so used by some Indian tribes who plaster the walls with mud and so make a house that answers for winter as well as summer use. This mud and ocotillo combination has a peculiar result. When rain comes, soaking the earth in which the canes are embedded, the seemingly dead sticks spring to life, put on leaves, and may even break into blossom. Two or three miles up the canyon, another interesting plant appeared, the agave, a wild type of the century plant. Its circle of bayonet-pointed leaves and ten-foot pole of flower stalk make it conspicuous among the low desert growths. Deer, bighorn, and cattle are keen for the juicy flower stem, and few of the plants would fulfill their destiny if it were not for the chevaux de frise that protects the citadel. Growing usually in close colonies, the interlocking leaves make an almost impenetrable barrier, so that the inner members of the group could only be attacked from the air. Thus, the wild desert bees find the agave their best means of support. The brush became heavier as we made our way up the canyon, until at one spot I counted close together ocotillo, agave, desert willow, smoke tree, cat claw, and the two kinds of mesquite. We were both on the lookout for water, and when a faint trickle showed above ground, Kawea made for it at once, sucking up a mixture of sand and liquid as if it were nectar of the finest tap. I was not much more particular, for the water in the canteen was too hot to be pleasant. There is said to be a trail up this canyon, but it was beyond my skill to follow it. Evening found us entering a jungle of arrowweed and mesquite. In this we struggled for an hour, hoping to fight a way through into clearer country. The last daylight left us at an impassable place, the creek close by but running in a deep channel with perpendicular walls, impossible for Kawea to descend. We turned and stumbled back for a mile in the darkness, Kawea getting badly snagged more than once on stumps of mesquite. When we could cross the creek, I turned upstream looking for a place to camp. Reaching a sandy opening among the willows, I stopped and off-saddled, gave Kawea a hearty feed, and ate my bread and cheese by starlight. Breakfast had been my last meal sixteen hours before. It was delicious to lie listening to the ripple of the creek and hearing Kawea nibble about. These moments gain charm in proportion to their rarity, and the desert traveler meets them seldom. How true it is that happiness consists in trifles. Water, a little bag of barley, a few stars, a loaf and cheese, a tomato and a cool night coming, that was about all. Yet even the mosquitoes could not disturb my tranquility that long evening on Coyote Creek. End of chapter 13